Hi, you're listening to Tales from the Jungle, Living with Addiction. This is a podcast written and produced by a mom of an addict, specifically for other families who live with and or interact with an addicted family member. Hey there, Jungle fans. I'm back. I'm jumping in with a surprise bonus episode, or two, depending on how chatty we are. With me here is the lady around whom I've learned so much. That's right, it's Casey, here to spill all the tea on her life and thoughts around this whole subject. The growth we've both done is phenomenal, and I believe we not only need to celebrate, but also talk about it. Welcome back, Jungle fans. I'm so excited to introduce you to my daughter, Casey. Hi, Casey, and welcome. Hi. (laughs) Excited to be here. I understand this may be difficult, and I really applaud your courage in talking with me, as well as all the work you've done to get here. So why don't you tell everyone what your life looks like now? So um, I never expected my life to look like it is now. Um, right now, I am the business office manager of a medical company. Um, That's and, awesome. Yeah, I love it. Um, and I never, I really never thought I'd be here. Um, honestly, I always assumed I would be an addict for the rest of my life, or at least an active using at some point during my life. Mm-hmm. So um, the fact that I'm where I'm at, um, I'm super proud of myself and um of course I couldn't have done it without you guys <laughs> so but um yeah so yeah and I'm in Minnesota so that's a downside but <laughs> but I do love the snow so but just not negative 35 <laughs> and well you've been adjusting really well I mean you've got your job together you've got a place together you've been doing it all on your own it's it's been amazing and I've been really impressed with all the work you've done Thanks. Um, And I know it's been a long journey, so let's jump right into some of the questions that people may be thinking about. So if there was one thing about addiction, uh, what would you want families or of addicts to know about? Um, So I think a lot of families take it really personally when um, an addict lies to them or, let's say, steals from them or does things that they may not do to an a, a stranger um, or even like an acquaintance mm-hmm. um, because they don't think about it like we're like they're trying to hurt you. Um, they more think about it as they know that you'll forgive them. So that's why they do it so much to the ones that love them the most. So why do you, why would you do it more to the ones who love you than to a perfect stranger who you wouldn't care if they forgive you or not? So it's more like perfect strangers don't allow you the access that people that love you do. Okay. So it's about setting up boundaries. So if if we were in that situation, if I'm leaving things around, I'm making it easy for you to be able to get what you want. Um, yeah, and also I noticed um, a lot of people will move to a different state 
let's say Florida, <laughs> um, and then call their family and say that they need food or they need this or they need that, and they're in like a halfway house, so sober or whatever the excuse is, right? most families want to believe their kids. They want to believe their loved ones. They want to believe that they're not lying to them. Right. Um, but it is a disease and, you know, your brain literally tells you to do anything to get to that next drug or the next high or to make yourself feel better. Right. Um, so all, everything else doesn't matter. So... How does a family member know when you're in a halfway house and doing well, as opposed to when you're in a halfway house about to relapse or have relapsed and are already stealing and doing the things you shouldn't be doing? So I think um, you need to do a lot of research. Um, a lot of these, there's millions of halfway houses, and most of them are just in it for the insurance money. They want you to relapse because then they can put you back in detox and run your right. insurance. Um, so you have to do a lot of research. And a lot of the halfway houses that communicate with the family more um, are usually the better ones because ones that don't communicate with the family and kind of just their insurance pays their rent there. Right. Um, they'll never speak to you. So if you have, so if I put you in a halfway house and you're in one state and I'm in another state, yeah. is that halfway house still going to communicate with me a lot? Or it, because I'm so removed, are they going to not? And they could still be a good halfway house. They should still contact you. Um, or if you contact them, they should be able to tell you what's going on with me. What about the halfway houses where the family member, the mom calls up and says, hey, tell me about how Casey's doing. Um, I'm concerned. I've seen a couple red flags and I was just wondering if you could talk to me about it. And the response you get back sometimes is, well, we can't really talk to you about it because mm -hmm. of HIPAA violations. Um, and we don't have your daughter's permission to do that. So a lot of, um, of the better halfway houses and even rehab facilities, mm -hmm. sometimes they require upon admission that you release, um, I guess, to at least one family member, the fact that they can talk to them about what's going on with you. So I know at one place I was at, they, they actually told me if I did not release my information to you guys, that they would discharge me. Okay. So. so the better ones will do that. And you can ask them in advance if that's their policy before setting up an admission and all of that. Yep. Absolutely. That's awesome. Okay. Good to know. What would you say that you need most from family members to help you find the strength to want to start treatment and healing in an honest way? Because just to give a little background, there were times where I felt like you would come to us and say, okay, I'm ready to get clean. Um, you were out of resources. You needed help. And sometimes that was just a ploy to get us to help you get you back on track, but not really get clean. How can a family member really tell the difference there? So that's tricky because it never was a ploy. Um, I was always honest about me wanting to get clean 
and wanting help at that time. Right. So again, and it's a disease. So after so long, it tell you tell yourself, well, I can do it once. I can do it a couple times as long as I don't do it long enough to get sick or whatever your drug of choice is, um, then I'll be fine. And I can do this where I can do it every so often when I want to have fun (laughs) and then go back to my normal life. You know, everybody talks themselves into it because that's just the nature of the beast. Right. So every time you're broken to a certain point, like you'll do anything to to get sober and live a normal life and everything. But once you start getting a little bit healthy and a little bit better and you see that, okay, I'm doing fine now. So if I were to just, you know, dabble, I'll be all right. And then it turns into what it turns into. Right. And you don't even see it coming really. But I think deep down, you'll always know it's going to turn out like that if you start again. So I know for us, it took, a number of relapses for us both to understand the nature of it, my part in it, your part in it, how we interacted, how we needed to change. Um, I know I had a lot of problems with enabling when we first started the process and I had to, it took me probably three or four years to even understand about enabling because every time I got an explanation about it, it sounded different to me and I couldn't pinpoint what I was doing to enable you. And I think part of that is because there is no set definition that it can look different for every single person. It's the net effect of what you're doing that really ends up being enabling. And why don't you talk about that from your perspective? So I think that... I think you guys put a lot of thought into what you did to to keep me going down that path. And down which path? Down the, um, I guess, the relapse and using an addiction path. Okay. Um, but even when we didn't speak for three years, I was still using. Right. Um, so it had nothing to do with you guys. Whether you guys gave me everything or nothing, I was going to find. So, and I think that you guys think that you enabled me a lot, but there are most of the parents, most of the family members out there, the amount of enabling, the amount of, but they just, um, it's not naivety or being naive, but it's, um, I guess they just don't want to see, they just don't want to see what it is. Right. Um, It's the guilt that they feel that mm -hmm. they want to, in some respects, they're doing it for themselves. And Mm -hmm. when they give, they don't have to um, think about you maybe dying or you maybe being hurt or whatever. Here, I'm giving you things to make you better, not thinking about the long-term consequences. That Yeah, I think guilt comes into play a lot when it comes to children because they're like, what did I do? to make her like this or him like this. Right. And I, at this point with how things are going nowadays, it has nothing to do with any of that. I mean, there's people that had not a single problem in their childhood who turned out to be an addict. There are people who had a horrible childhood and they turned out to be an addict. It really all depends on kind of your genes a little bit and kind of who you end up hanging out with. I mean, it could be just, it could be just that. So... And when people are in active addiction, 
sometimes they play into that whole guilt with the enabler. I do know that where it's like, no, it was your fault because um, you gave me too much when I was younger. You made it too easy for me to go down this path. Whatever the reason was, or you weren't there enough for me, so I turned to drugs. It's There's a lot of things that I think are said when someone's in active addiction that maybe they don't necessarily believe. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, it's all manipulation, honestly. Um, anytime someone's in active addiction, they're saying whatever they can think of to get you to give them what they want. Yeah. So, I mean, even if it's true, it could be totally true, but it also could be just them knowing that it affects you and it makes you feel bad or guilty. So they use that to their benefit. Right. So they know that if they say certain things, since they've tried at pretty much everything, they know what works, they know what doesn't. Yeah. So if it works, they're going to use it. <laughs> you know? it's, it's like anything else. You know, right. if you give a, a dog a treat for sitting down, he's going to continue to sit, you know. Right. So it's it, it just all comes down to um, addicts are probably the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Some of the things I've seen them come up with is just like a normal person would be like, what? <laughs> Do you have any examples? Um. So... <laughs> Uh, like, okay, so gift cards. You know, you buy a gift card, a Visa gift card. Right. Um, check that Visa gift card when you purchase it. Because people are taking the cards out, all the cards that have no money on them yet. Right. So when the cashier scans them, it automatically loads those cards. Right. But they have a library card in there. So when they scan the card that that person has already taken out, automatically becomes active now. And they have $100. So... The addict will replace the card with a library card. Mm-hmm. So the person purchasing it will give the library card to the... So they're normally in a package. So like, you know, the little Visa packages, and they just scan it. Oh, they the outside the of the package. Yeah. Oh. So they don't scan the actual card. So once they scan it, it makes that active. But isn't it enclosed in cellophane? So how would they get into the card? Most of them are just paper. Most of them are just a paper pole. So you just pull the paper, take the car out, and put one in there, and put the paper down, and kind of tuck it under. And no one knows the difference. Right. Except that when they get out there, they're going to see the library right. card. But it's already going to be active, and there's nothing they can do to make it unactive. Oh, there's not? They no. can't nope. cancel it in nope. any way? Nope. I did not know that. Yeah, so they'll take their, their stack of cards, and they'll call all of them to see which ones are active. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would think of stuff like that? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I know you used to, um, you told us about a couple things that you did Mm -hmm. um, where you'd find receipts in parking lots and then um, return items that were on that receipt Mm -hmm. because you had stolen the items and then take them back with some bogus receipt and then get the cash for them. Well, once you find the receipt, it has to be a cash receipt. Yes. And it, then you have to go find the items. And that takes a lot of work. You would think. <laughs> it does take a lot of work. It does. Um, but you'd be surprised how much effort goes into... It's a full-time job. Absolutely. <laughs> it's absolutely a full-time job. And that's the thing is that I would see you from first thing in the morning. The first thing you're thinking about is how am I going to get that next fix? And it was so took over your life 
and you didn't have room to think about anything else. So how do you make that switch from that thinking that is so Mm all-encompassing to wanting to stay sober? So once you get to a certain point, you're not getting a fix. You're just getting normal. Right. So you're, you just want to be normal without having to do all of that at some point. So then you get to the point where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to get sober and I just want to like live my normal life. Well, before you go on, yeah. is there any kind of average time frame that it takes to get to that point? Nope. So I've seen people who've done it on their first try. I've seen people who've done it on their 20th try. Done what? Um, gotten sober. I'm sorry. Okay. Gotten sober um, on their first try or their 20th try. It really all depends on the person and it, it really all, it doesn't depend on anything else, but how invested they are in it. Is there anything that makes one person more invested than another? No. Um, it, no, it's just, I mean, people, places, and things. Honestly, if you surround yourself with people who are sober and want to stay sober, your likelihood of being sober will will go up tremendously. But to do that, you have to already have that desire that you want to stay sober. Yes, absolutely. And you, well, so for me, I would see you start down that path, but it seemed over time that your relapse rate was quicker and quicker. It's almost like your brain couldn't stay on that track and it would switch back to what it was used to quicker and quicker. Is that right? Um, well, I hadn't been to rehab for a while towards the end of So it was pretty much me doing it on my own. Okay. So for when someone does it on their own, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very tough. Because it, you know, you're you feel awful, <laughs> right? Um, but even when you feel better, um, you still have those, let's say, drug dealers or people who reach out to you, right? And be like, hey, they know you're you haven't called them in a little bit. They're like, oh, I want to stop by and give you a free sample of whatever new stuff I got, right? Right down the same path. Like, because you're not going to say no, because it takes a really long time to start feeling completely normal. Yeah. Well, when um, when you go to rehab and you've been to rehab three, four, five, six times, mm-hmm. does it really do any good to keep going back to rehab? Because at some point I thought you said, I've pretty much learned the tools. Mm-hmm. They don't do a lot for me now. Yeah. Because once you've gone through it and you know it and you understand it, you were saying that you didn't really think it did a lot for you. And actually, I think at some points, like it gave me the tools to begin with, but at some at some point, it gets to the point where it's not helping you anymore and you're just surrounded by other addicts right. who are in the same position. So when, it's, when you have a disease like that, it's easy to talk yourself into anything. So if you've got... 30 people there, only 10% of them are going to stay clean and the other 90 aren't. It's really easy for you guys to talk each other into going back out. Right. So I think what's tough about rehabs and halfway houses and stuff is you all have the same disease in there. So you're all working against each other. So that's, and then you have new friends that are 
addicts. And so you hang out with those friends and it goes right back down that path. So the people who relapse while they're in rehab, they're actively trying to get other people to relapse? Some people. And even if you're outside of rehab, let's say you stay in contact, because a lot of people stay where they where they go to rehab. Right. Um, then they're like, oh, well, you have other connections. I have connections. Let's put our connections together. <laughs> and and have a party. party. Yes. <laughs> so, and that's kind of how it usually works. And it's awful, but it just is what it is. And I don't see any other better way they could do it. Okay. Okay. So you don't think that there's anything that the rehab facilities are doing to make it harder on addicts? The thing is, I'm not saying there's, they're doing everything they can really, because you can't do anything. You can't make someone want it more than you want. Right. So you can't like wish it for them. So they have to do the work. They have to really want it. And I think that if you're staying busy and you're, and you're like getting a job, let's say, I know that the one place I was at, they told me to get a recovery job, which means don't get a job. Let's say you have a college degree. Don't get a job that, that your college degree or what am I saying? (laughs) So don't get a good, good job, get a like retail job. Get a low, low, low end job. So even if you have a college degree, they want you to get a retail job. Yeah, because they don't want you to be stressed out. So the less stress you're in, but also working and and taking some of that time up, um, they think is is good. I disagree. Okay, so I think this is there's a lot to this because there's so much about these low level jobs, include including about working as a server and things like that. That I think. We need to cut this here um, and then pick up next week with our next episode because this is really good. I'm really excited about um, being able to talk with you and get this out there. I really appreciate it. So for now, Jungle fans, we are going to say goodbye, but we look forward to talking to you next week, and I will see you soon. See you soon. (laughs) Music is Riding the Dragon by Movie Theater.